0: Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we have Jerome Tubiana back on the show to talk about the escalating, very alarming violence in Darfur. Jerome is a writer, researcher, and formerly a senior analyst on Sudan for Crisis Group. Jerome, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Alan. Now, of course, we're always happy to have repeat guests, although in this case, it's um, unfortunately due to rather tragic circumstances. Since we last talked, uh, mostly focused on the rapid support forces and General Hemeti and his rise, of course, we, we've we seen a massive spike in violence in areas of Darfur. Um, so so it's good to have you back to, to talk about that. Um, so, so first of all, let's just very much focus on what's happening to start with. And let's start in West Darfur, where, of course, it looks like the worst is happening. So can you tell us exactly what's happening there and, and what we know and what we don't know?
1: Right. Well, what we know is there was violence in, in West Darfur before 15 April, before the conflict started in, in Khartoum. There's been actually a spike in violence in West Darfur since the revolution, since 2019, for different reasons. But one particular reason is that that state has been very peaceful in the last decade before the revolution. But that was not real peace or stability. That was just a piece of the victors, uh, local Arab militias, with their leaders who could be both traditional leaders and militia leaders or recruiters very close to the Bashir regime, had had basically kept their deal with the Bashir regime that they would provide recruits for, for paramilitary forces, militias, and in exchange they would get power and, and some freedom to, to rule that state, and in effect they ruled it. So in 2003, that's exactly 20 years ago, those militias had displaced largely the, the local, indigenous, non-Arab, Masalid community displaced within the state, but also in, in rural areas or in large camps around the capital, Jenina, but also largely to Chad. And those who were still trying to keep their land or, or to return to their land were often uh, suffering some kind of domination, like they had to pay taxes to be able to farm, or some kind of protection taxes. So that was this kind of situation, a kind of piece of the victors. After the revolution, though those Masalit people and other non-Arab communities, they started to, to claim their rights back, including their the right of returning to their land. And the Masalit claimed their land back by different means, including joining resistance committees. You know, it was a revolution, and those resistance committees in, in Darfur, notably in West Darfur, they were not only asking for civilian and democratic rule, they were also asking for peace and, and getting their land, getting their rights back. They also reformed what was their initial, let's say, proto-armed groups before the Darfur War in 2003, which were self-defense groups, self-defense militias. But all this made the Arab communities a bit wary, and so they started to fight back as well using the militias and to attack Masalid um, villages and, and IDP camps several times about every six months until uh, last year. Last year there was um, a few months of peace. Actually, in that state, mostly because Hameti intervened and forced the peace on, on the local actors. And, uh, but then, uh, just before uh, 15 April, actually, already in late March, it started again, as always, with a very small trigger incident, which was the, the murder of a trader belonging to another non Arab tribe, the Tama, in a village by, by two alleged Arab uh, thieves. And, and then there was violence between the two communities. And so it started before, and then after 15 April it actually rose again, especially in the last weeks. So there was uh, apparently a lot of displacement again. 150,000 Masalit displaced to Chad, and also a lot of casualties. So I believe by by now we actually lost any chance of getting a real understanding of the of the number of deaths. But it's quite likely that in West Darfur more died. Uh, since 15 April than in all the rest of Sudan.
0: Right. Now, a lot of the sort of reports coming out there, you know, f- from journalists mostly, um, but talking to refugees who, who are fleeing across the border into Chad, El Janina, you know, sits almost on the Chadian border. Um, you know, a lot of those reports are using words like ethnic cleansing, even genocide. What do we know about the type of violence being used and, and basically what scale of atrocities we're looking at?
1: Well, we know that the same type of uh, Atrocities have been, uh, that have been happening in Darfur, uh, in particular in 20 years ago, when the, the conflict uh, officially began, we know those, those atrocities happened again. Those included uh, uh, burning uh, houses and a large part of Jenaena city seems to have been burnt, but also killing, in particular the, the men. The governor himself, who is a Masalit, was apparently murdered, and it also includes so killing civilians, and, and we, we don't know that much, but there, are, there have been also testimonies about sexual violence. It's all the same kind of usual violence, except today, unlike 20 years ago, there is not a coordinated attack directed from, from the top authorities. I mean, from the, the presidency in Khartoum, like was a, like happened during Bashir. So it's, it's not exactly the same in that sense. There is also a clear lack of control, which was not necessarily the case 20 years ago. I mean, there, there are there are clearly indications that, that conflict is not making the RSF very happy, but that they cannot fully control the Arab militias who are involved, including maybe some of their own members. But basically, it's a kind of second war. It's not exactly the same war that is taking place at the national level, but definitely the war that is happening at the national level is allowing that local war and is allowing local actors, including some of those Arab militias, to actually instrumentalize the tensions at the, at the national level to be allowed to resume their old ethnic conflict. In the meantime, that local war is also somehow backfiring on the, on the national war because um chiefly the RSF has been blamed for being involved.
0: Mm. Do you think this is mostly a case of rather than one causing the other it's it's that the you know the sort of collapse of Sudan and the battle of Khartoum has created a situation where this has been able to spiral out of control and and essentially you know there there aren't any authorities to to stop this from happening um or do you think there are other feedback loops where the war in Khartoum is sort of playing into what's what's happening on the ground such as that you know perhaps Hameti is not as willing to try to crack down on co-kinsmen because he, you know, he, he needs them also in, in Khartoum.
1: Well, Henneti has condemned some part of the violence, as, as he has done in the past. But uh, indeed, it's may not be that easy for him to actually, for instance, held perpetrators accountable. He is also chiefly, him and the RSF and, and the local Arab communities are also chiefly putting the blame on the army that they accuse of engineering that those local conflicts. And it's not a new accusation. I mean, the, the, they've been accusing the army of engineering local conflicts in Darfur, in Kordofan, and all across Sudan's peripheries since the revolution. And they've been accusing the army of doing this, chiefly to bring back the RSF to the peripheries and, and stop their deployment in Khartoum. And it may be partly true, but here also, in West Darfur, you see more than the engineering of the army, you see local Arab players being active themselves, and indeed somehow feeling that they can instrumentalize the need of the RSF to have their support in order to fight their own war. So, which which is actually why this war is not going is not going exactly in the direction the RSF leadership could have hoped. In particular, the RSF was clearly deploying forces in Khartoum because they were willing to fight in Khartoum, because everyone in Darfur actually believes fighting in Darfur is is only harming community relations in Darfur without having effect on national politics, as it's clearly been the case in 20 years. And also because, I mean, the RSF, they need broader support than just Arab tribes in Darfur. And these local tensions are not helping them at all. In the meantime, it's also a different war in the sense that it's maybe the, the only place in Sudan where, where you you don't see civilians just being killed as a result of collateral damage or crossfire or indiscriminate shooting, but actually being targeted based on their ethnic identity. So this also is making West Darfur quite specific. Now there is also another question. is These things have also happened to a lesser extent in other places, including in other states of Darfur. And how much is there a risk that this type of, of conflict, clearly an, an Arab versus non-Arab conflict, could actually expand to other parts of Sudan.
0: And so where has it expanded to thus far? And, and, and what is the connection? Could we say any of it's coordinated? Or does it all look for now to be localized?
1: It looks more localized. But there are, there may be some common patterns. But clearly, we didn't see what's been happening in Jana, happening in other places. There are reports that it it's actually spreading to central Darfur to some extent. But still, every Darfur is very contrasted and it's a very different situation with local actors also having a different type of, of leverages on, on the situation. For instance, the Juba peace agreement signed in 2020 brought Darfur rebels, mostly from Libya, into Darfur. And, well, Arab communities, no least in West Darfur, were not that happy of that return. And not that happy with the agreement. In particular, you could say, in West Darfur, Arab communities were rather angry with Hameti for having initiated the Juba peace agreement. That was before 15 April, and they were not happy to see the rebels coming back, including the governor himself, the new governor. He was appointed after signing the Juba peace agreement. He's been a rebel. He's been an old rebel. He's been one of the founders of the Sudan Liberation Army and before that he's also been active at mobilizing self-defense groups in West Darfur among his, his own Masalit community. And so he came back to implement that agreement. He was not really welcomed and so quite specific to, to, to West Darfur. In, the, the rebels came back alongside the governor but they were rather weak in West Darfur. They could integrate some members of the self-defense groups of the local self-defense groups, who were then trying to legalize their their existence and their possession of of weapons as a rebel group signatory of a peace agreement. In North Darfur, for instance, it's a very different story because most of the rebels who signed Juba are from North Darfur and they came back in North Darfur with, with many forces and with a number of important positions in the state and at the national level. There, the Juba peace agreement had completely different effects. Whether it made some Arab communities happy or not, the fact is that in order for the rebels could take control not only of positions, but actually of large swathes of the state. And in those areas, you could see that they brought a level of stability.
0: What's happening in, you mentioned it, there are signs that it might be in some reports that's spreading to, to central Darfur. What's happening there? Obviously, uh, some of that territory is still controlled by Abdawahid al the rebel leader who didn't sign the, the Juba peace agreement. Um, so, so what's happening in that area? Actually, in,
1: in Central Darfur, is also very contrasted in a way. In the lowlands of Central Darfur, the area called uh, Wadi Saleh has always been very tough. And it's, it's where there's been a lot of ethnic violence and uh, Arab attacks against the four tribes in 2003. This is the reason why Yanjawi leader Ali Koshib is now at the ICC, at the International Criminal Court, for those killings in that area. And it's still very tense in that area. But in Jebel Marra, in the mountains, which have been a rebel stronghold, it's a whole different story. First, because in the back of the Bishop government, the rebels, in order to survive and, and to trade with the government areas, have been able to establish some kind of relatively good relations with Arab communities around them. Although it's been not very stable. I mean, there, there, there are a number of local agreements hallowing trade between four in the rebel area and uh, Arab communities around them. So it's still somehow a a local factor which is which is an important one and can actually prevent the conflict to to spread. The other thing is the the attitude of Abdelwahid himself and his rebel movement. Uh, In recent years they were actually more busy fighting uh, between factions than uh, fighting the government or fighting uh, Arab militias. The adeloid's position is that the, 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 situ- the, the conditions are not good enough to negotiate any peace at the national level, so he's waiting for a better situation. And somehow the current conflict is giving him reason that actually neither the RSF or the SAF were actually good good partners for 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 peace talks.
0: Mm. And. As you mentioned, you know, several times, a lot of this feels like perhaps a delayed fallout from the Juba peace agreement. In in 2020, you had ex-rebels take up positions of power. You had communities come back claiming land after the revolution, after the peace deal. And of course, as you said, that sort of in many places upset the, the victors peace that was... That was there. So do you think this was in in some way inevitable? I mean, we, we've we've sort of circled around this a lot already on this podcast, but how should we see the connection between what's breaking out, which which you're calling a sort of second war, to what's happening in Khartoum? If you stop the war in Khartoum, could you stop the war in Darfur? Could you stop the war in Darfur without stopping the the war in Khartoum?
1: Yeah, probably not. But I think it would be more difficult to stop the war in Darfur than to, to stop the war in Khartoum in a way. Even so, it will not be easy in Khartoum either. But as for the war in West Darfur, well, I think probably it it would have been difficult to avoid some kind of resumption. But definitely, without that war in Khartoum, it would not have been that big. Because clearly, you you can blame for past conflicts in West Darfur in 2019, 2020, 2021. You, You could blame a level of indifference on behalf of Khartoum, which has been a pattern for forever in, in, in regarding Darfur. And uh, when I say on behalf of Khartoum, I mean both the army, who very rarely intervened in, in local conflicts in Darfur in the last years, uh, or very lately intervened, uh, from the civilian politicians as well, who did not pay much attention, for the, from the international community as well. I don't think the Juba peace agreement is, is what made it unavoidable. I think you could say that the well the Juba Peace Agreement has been criticized from the from the start story, chiefly by, by the civilian politicians in Khartoum because they saw the Darfur rebels as as rightly actually as competitors. But the Juba Peace Agreement had contrasted effects on the ground in Darfur. For instance, in West Darfur definitely it, it contributed to existing tensions, but in North Darfur, as I mentioned, it rather brought some stability and security. So now what clearly has been a problem regarding the, the Juba-Peace Agreement, is that the, the framework agreement which was brokered by UNITAMS, and maybe it could be related to UNITAMS' quite strong indifference to, to the peripheries, to the, the situation within Darfur and other peripheries, it clearly sidelined some of the darfur and other players from, from Darfur and the peripheries. And it notably not just because they were not ready to sign the framework agreement as it was, and they, were, they rather felt excluded, but also because it included the very idea, which actually was, was brought by the politicians in the center, that the Juba peace agreement was actually a danger and should be revised or renegotiated. And basically it was felt quite rightly as a threat by the signatories. So you, you could not get them on board that easily as soon as you had that and a few other not easy-to-accept provisions.
0: Okay. So trying to pull this all together a a bit more, we've talked about several localized areas, West Darfur, Central Darfur, North Darfur. What's the risk of this sort of spreading and conjoining into something like a larger conflict? Or do you think that this is likely to remain sort of localized pockets from here on out? that you can, you know, perhaps address through local peace building or or at least think of as as more localized conflicts versus thinking, you know, very much as I I think I phrased it earlier, a war in Darfur, which obviously seems to have larger connotations.
1: I think there is a risk of of spreading a community dimension, especially Arabs versus non-Arabs. I think that risk is partly due to the fact that what's been happening in West Darfur as somehow made it a bit more difficult for other non-Arab communities in Darfur, maybe even in, in other peripheries, to remain neutral. In that sense, it's quite counterproductive from the RSF perspective and less counterproductive from the South perspective because the South could hope to get more support from non-Arab in the peripheries. But that would be very damaging because that could somehow make whole communities again, uh, 20 years after the, the beginning of the war in Darfur, targets for Arab militias, which have we have seen in West Darfur, are, are not fully controlled by anyone.
0: And then what's the, you know, we haven't talked much about the, the role in SAF in all of this. What, what has been the role of the Sunni's armed forces in what we've seen thus far in, in Darfur since this, since this fighting broke out in Khartoum?
1: Well, first, the, the Sunni's armed forces they managed to, to keep some presence in Darfur, including some garrisons, uh, airports. And so that somehow has made it impossible not to fight in Darfur. I believe that the Arab strategy would have been rather to avoid fighting in Darfur and to fight only in Khartoum. But there, there were these strategic assets, which were either a threat or a secondary target, which made that fighting somehow unavoidable also in some areas which is what is really interesting the SAF and the RSF garrisons have been basically looking at each other without much fighting i think primarily because local players were, were in places where they were strong which is in places where they had not been weakened or, or completely destabilized by the 30 years of of Bashir regime's rule and, and active destabilization of the local native administration and other civil society components. So, in, in such places, local players, strong local players, were somehow able to tell the belligerents, "Fight in Khartoum only. We don't want fighting in our state." And especially in cases where you could have people from the same communities on in both sides, members of both forces, avoid killing each other. So, I think that message somehow played a role and could play even a larger role if we want to be a little bit optimistic on on uh, on the idea of avoiding uh, uh, local uh, uh, fighting to to spread in within Darfur
0: so i want to um dive a bit more into these Darfur Arab dynamics you know in, it it seems a bit crazy on a certain level to think that essentially these these arab identifying communities from Darfur who make up the core of the of the RSF it can almost look like they're taking on the whole of Sudan at once which of course is Simplifying it a bit, but you know they're fighting this big war essentially in Khartoum, and then meanwhile they're now fighting on multiple fronts in Darfur. How is that possible? it would you know you would think it would you know this would be unsustainable even just on the Khartoum level, let alone also waging war in Darfur at the same time
1: well it's really difficult to know how it is possible, but I think there is a, some motivation and including for for the for the leadership, it's clearly a survival issue. I mean, I think they, they understand, the areas of leadership understand that if they if they lose, it will be very difficult to, to actually survive. And that does include why they don't want to lose Khartoum and are, are actually making real efforts in controlling some key areas in Khartoum and even in, in getting more control. Now, key issues is are recruitment on both sides. There is clearly competition to recruit more. And, and to reach out to to different communities and to avoid defections as well, which is not easy. And here, you what you have at stake is is, is partly an ideological war. Like the RSF will try to present themselves as supporters of the revolution and anti-Islamists, anti-former regime, while the army will try to including using the, the West End for events, we'll will t- rather try to emphasize the abusive nature of the of the RSF fighters or some of them and, and their and their tribal nature. So the, the, there is on one side there is that ideological war which can have influence on the motivation of, of some communities to join one of the forces or rather to stay neutral and allowing some recruitment. But on the other side the recruitment is also motivated by money, in particular, if you look at impoverished communities, for instance, in the peripheries, but also in in Khartoum's suburbs, some of which are now controlled by the RSF, money may play a role. And if 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 money can still be paid, as soon as money can still be paid, but then it's not only money because we've seen a lot of looting as well, pillage, and and pillage can also be a motivation for some of the fighters from fighters from very poor. Uh, neighborhoods and so on so it's 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 a bit of all this I think which is determining the the ability of, of the forces to keep fighting in in very different places in very different contexts somehow you feel both both sides are, are fighting for their survival also in a context where some usually secondary players may may want to prove the leadership that they are useful to get to get some future rewards unfortunately I think in those, New situations. You still have players who have interest into more war, which is sometimes making it a little bit more difficult to to really discuss peace.
0: And of course, the these Darfuri Arab communities are not homogenous. They're not a monolith. They have a lot of internal rivalries. You know, between different tribes, between different clans um, within the tribes. Does it look like we are starting to see more of a collective? response you know perhaps with ACS self-defense um, but basically behind the rsF behind their communities in this war I did see in the past few days there's a report about seven traditional leaders you know sort of announcing their support for the rsF uh, as well as communities. Um, so do you think we're seeing the, the tribal dimensions of this start to change and start to unify as well
1: it, it is true that the the, the Arab communities are, are, are very divided. And at least they were extremely divided just before the the current fighting. And the army also played on those divisions, or even fueled them. The army was trying to recruit some members of Arab communities in Darfur, specifically against the RSF. If you remember, at that time, it was discussed publicly, and, and already the East Darfur traditional leadership, that is, the Nazir, the paramount chief of the Rezegat tribe, which is the tribe of both Hemeti and his main rival, Musa hilal called for the Saf to stop their recruitment campaign among his tribe, which was very, a very strong message, actually, warning of the problems. Indeed, that competition to recruit among that divided tribe actually fueled the, the current conflict. Now there are still divisions, and you apparently still had some... Uh, Arabs fighting, including Arabs from Darfur and, and other areas, fighting on the side of the army, and even possibly killing some relatives who are fighting on the RSF side. But you also had Arab communities or, or members of Arab communities who, even if they really didn't like the RSF and Hameti before that conflict, have actually been aligning with him now. And that could indeed include some kind of a reflex of ethnic solidarity, that could also include the the desire of avoiding casualties w- within the, the tribe if people find them, themselves fighting on both sides, and of course that could involve more more opportunistic motivations as we mentioned before, as in any kind of of recent recruitment, it could also involve interest for for money or or uh, other greed.
0: Hmm. Um- Okay, since we don't have an endless amount of time, as always on these podcasts, I, I want to shift slightly to uh, to zoom out a bit more regionally. During the Darfur conflict two decades ago, when it broke out, Chad at various times was essentially supporting uh, some of these non-Arab communities. Of course, Debbie is Zahawa as are some of the non-Arab communities in Darfur that took up arms. Uh, so there's you know there, there's major cross border dimensions here. D- what is the risk? Do you think that Chad finds itself sucked in, or at least is tempted to get involved in the in the conflict um, in Darfur? If this if this does expand and sort of deepen,
1: there is a, I think there is something wrong in the idea that the Chadian regime, from from Debbie's father till today with Debbie's son, is is actually dominated by the zawa tribe and the army. And there is a level of, of solidarity between Chadian Zahawa and Sudanese Zawa. It's a cross-border tribe. But actually Debid did not support the Darfur rebels as people usually believe. He actually tried to stop them and even actively fought them. But he could not prevent his own army and even his own family to support them, which is why the Beshi regime started to actually support all kinds of Chadian rebels, including Chadian Arabs and others. And it became a proxy war. Now I don't think it could start again. First, because for the moment at least the Zawa and the Zawa rebels are not taking side in, in that conflict between South and RSF. It's another type of conflict, so they're not chiefly concerned. It could change indeed if they were targeted, for instance, and if the Zawa community was, was actually targeted. And I believe there are some people, including some Chadian-Arab rebels, who are trying to to provoke a conflict between Arab and Zahra, whether in Darfur or in Chad, or possibly in both. But the Chadian regime is also quite resilient into that, because there are also other Chadian-Arab leaders and, and who are a bit more responsible and are actually trying to avoid to have that type of conflict spread into Chad. But as a matter of fact... It's already spreading into Chad. And there is a risk it could spread more, just because there are Chad and Arab fighters who have been joining the Arab militias in Darfur and the RSF since since two decades and, and still now. And equally for them as for any recruits, the motivations are, are, are diverse. They're not only about ethnic solidarity, they're also about thinking of obtaining something which could go from money to some kind of support for a Chadian agenda. But it's it's not clear what will happen. But what is true is that there is long-term damage for Chad, which has already been visible in Chad, in the sense that in the past, there were communal conflicts in Chad, usually described as conflicts between pastoralists and, and farmers, but, but they were not necessarily very ethnic. And in particular, they didn't have an, an Arab versus non-Arab dimension. But in recent years, you could see that dimension, that pattern getting imported into Chad. And I remember discussing it with in Chad already a few years ago with some Chadian Arab traditional leaders. And what they were telling me was a little bit disturbing, was very disturbing actually, is that they were, they were basically saying our youth, who is getting recruited into the of just for money because they have absolutely nothing to do in Chad, nothing to get an income, when they come back to Chad after one or two years in the RSF, they come back with a different kind of mindset. And that kind of mindset is actually much more racist than the usual Chadian mindset of, of community relations. So yeah, that is, I think, somehow slowly spreading and it is pretty dangerous.
0: Hmm. And do you think the deployment of French troops um, along the Sudan-Chad border there presumably be to try to contain the, the conflict in, in, in Sudan um, from spreading. Do you think that's had any major effect?
1: For now, I don't know what is the effect, but I think it's mostly sending a message that they are ready to face some kind of spreading or rather to contribute to face because who is deployed there mostly is actually the Chadian army. And somehow you could say the, the Chadian army is now a little bit more equipped than what it was 20 years ago to, to face this kind of risk. The fact that the Zahawah are not directly involved is also making the Chadian army a little bit more credible than it used to be 20 years ago.
0: And final question before we go look a bit ahead into what can possibly be done about all this. Where are the, you know, besides the RCF? where are a lot of these Arab communities getting their arms, their supplies from?
1: Huh, I really have no idea, but I, I actually suppose that they already accumulated guns for a long time, because if you think of it, there's been a continuous supplying of weapons during Bashir during the Bashir regime, to Arab community leaders who actually weren't, were turned into militia leaders or recruiters, which they were not necessarily at the beginning. So that has actually destabilized a lot the, the, the tribal administration in, in Darfur. I think they just have accumulated an, an incredible amount of of weapons, which they did not necessarily need, actually.
0: And does RSF have the capacity to also supply some of these communities? RSF,
1: I, mean, I don't know what they've been doing recently after 15 April, but what my understanding is that precisely because RSF was designed by by the Bashir regime as as a solution to retake control of armed Arab communities or unconsoled militias. So RSF was actually recruiting rather than than just arming communities. And actually the RSF and Hemeti have acknowledged or even argued that they were sometimes losing control, and I'm I'm talking including before the current conflict, that some people could have RSF uniforms and have and be ex-RSF members and be and be fighting for other interests, including sometimes against the RSF. Well, this may still happen today.
0: So obviously it's you know it's it's difficult to figure out exactly what can be done. Do you think there's any opening for outsiders to try and stop some of this conflict from happening to support local peace efforts? What are you advising people? Because obviously a lot of the focus Almost all of it has been focused on stopping the fighting in Khartoum, which, you know, hasn't really been going very well, to say the least. And less focus has been on Darfur. I think there's been an assumption of sorts that the best way to solve the conflict in Darfur is to stop the fight in Khartoum. But if that isn't happening, how can people try to address the conflict in Darfur, even as this fighting in Khartoum is going on?
1: It may be rather seen as two parallel things. Of course, it would be good to stop the fighting in Khartoum, and it would help. But in the meantime it would probably not be enough. So you have local processes more or less strong depending on the place. Some are trying to stop uh, already existing conflicts and others are trying to prevent more conflict depending on the area. I think those processes and, and some of the players playing a key role in those processes could get some international support while in the meantime the international community could actually exert leverage on on the belligerents at the national level, not to act as spoilers of local processes. But I would say that that would be already quite a lot, and that's already that would be already enough. I don't think that would be, I don't think a direct international mediation would be useful for for local processes at this stage. Successive international mediations lost a lot of credibility in Darfur, in particular after UNAMID departed. They they clearly lost all the work they had done in the past in terms of local reconciliation, which was not necessarily always successful, but at least they were starting to have some knowledge, and this has been completely lost by Unitems. So you don't want now Darfur to become again another kind of market for mediations, and that would just, you could imagine, there is a high risk of, of spoiling existing processes by local players.
0: Okay, th- thanks, Jerome, very much for, for finding time to come back and, and speak to us. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. To learn more about our work or read our reports, visit crisisgroup.org. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holinami.